Amen. Let's give God some praise in this place. Woo! God is so good. It's so good to be with you this morning. If you have your Bible, and I really hope you do, please turn to Romans chapter 8, verses 31 through 39. Romans chapter 8, verses 31 through 39. Happy 4th of July, by the way. You guys got some exciting plans this weekend? Yeah, yeah. Romans chapter eight, verses 31 through 39. The passage of scripture that we're in today is often referred to as the hymn of security. The hymn of security. And the reason why it's referred to as that is because in this passage, the apostle Paul uses a series of rhetorical questions to affirm the doctrine of eternal security. John MacArthur calls this passage of scripture an almost poetic declaration of thanksgiving for God's grace in which his children will live and rejoice throughout all eternity. Now before we get into our passage today, we need to take care of a few things. The first thing we need to take care of is defining eternal security. The second thing that we need to take care of is establishing why it's important that we hold to this doctrine. And then the last thing we need to take care of is answering a couple of questions that are commonly raised among those who would disagree with this doctrine. And so what is the doctrine of eternal security? Well, eternal security, which can be summed up uh, by the phrase, once saved, always saved, is the belief that once a person repents of his sin and places his faith in Jesus Christ as Savior, he cannot lose his salvation. Again, eternal security is the belief that once a person repents of his sin and places his faith in Jesus, that's very important, that phrase right there. Once a person Uh, truly acknowledges his sin and repents or turns away from his sin and places his faith in Jesus Christ as Savior. He cannot lose his salvation. That's what eternal security is. Now, let's take a look at two reasons why it's important that we hold to it. The first reason that I would share with you this morning is that it's biblical, Why is it important that we hold to the doctrine of eternal security? Well, number one, because it's biblical. Over and over again in scripture, we find biblical evidence that eternal security is true. In the book of Hebrews, for example, we read that he, speaking of Jesus, entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own Blood, thus securing an eternal redemption, thus securing an eternal, not a temporal, but an eternal redemption. Then in the book of Jude, verse 24, we read that to him who is able, this is speaking of God the Father, to him who is able to keep you, to keep you from stumbling and to present you, get this, blameless, before the presence of his glory with great joy. And then finally, Paul to the church in Ephesus, do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were 
sealed for the day of redemption. And so what do we learn from these verses? What we learn is that uh, the eternal security of the believer is true, that it's biblical. What we learn here is that eternal security was purchased by Jesus Christ. It is promised by the Father and it is sealed by the Holy Spirit. And so why is it important that we hold to this doctrine? Well, number one, because it's biblical. But not only that, but I would submit to you this morning that it is also essential to living free. The doctrine of eternal security is essential to living free. Have any of you ever heard of daisy theology? Anybody? Daisy theology is the belief that God's love for us is always a little bit uncertain. Daisy theology is the belief that uh, people go through life not knowing where they, can st- or where they stand with God. Sort of you know, uncertain whether or not a sin that they commit would cause God to take away their eternal life. It's like a little girl sitting in a field of daisies who picks a flower and then one by one takes off the petals, saying with each one, God loves me, God loves me not. God loves me, God loves me not. And with daisy theology, the most that you can do is hope that when you come to that last petal of the daisy, you end on a petal that says, he loves me. Because then and only then will you get into heaven. That's daisy theology. And what a horrible way to live, ladies and gentlemen. What a horrible way to, de- to live. This, this concept of daisy theology, this idea that our eternal security is not uh, secure, it, it doesn't promote a life of living free. It promotes fearful, works-based living. Ladies and gentlemen, eternal security though, tells us that God loves us unconditionally and therefore we can live joyfully in the freedom for which Christ has set us free, not submitting again to a yoke of slavery, but walking in the freedom of the Spirit. Eternal security tells us that we don't have to fear messing up or making a mistake. And believe you me, we're gonna mess up and we're gonna make mistakes, but we don't have to fear those moments. Why? Because God's love, uh, his perfect love, casts out fear, 1 John 4, 18. And what does it do? It frees us to live out the passage of scripture in Galatians 5 that Andrew shared with us last week. And so why is it important that we hold to the doctrine of eternal security? Well, not only is it biblical, but it is essential to living free. Now, let's address two questions that are commonly raised about the doctrine of eternal security because not everyone holds to this doctrine. Not everyone embraces it. Some people struggle with it, and then there are others who flat out deny it. And some would ask, if eternal security is true, then why does the Bible contain some strong warnings against apostasy? If eternal security is true, then why does the Bible warn us against apostasy or falling away? It's a great question. This issue of apostasy has led uh, a lot of people to doubt the doctrine of eternal security. I mean, after all, if we can't lose our salvation, then why are we warned against falling away? Well, I think it's important to understand what apostasy is according to God's word. 
according to God's word, not according to Webster's dictionary, right? Because if you go to Webster's dictionary, what you're gonna find is that apostasy is when someone falls away from the faith and it sort of oversimplifies the definition so that it could be applicable to any religion. But what does God's word say about apostasy? What God's word says about apostasy is that an apostate is a person who makes a profession of faith without ever truly receiving Jesus Christ as their savior. First John uh, 2.19 says this, it says they, speaking of apostates, went out from us. But get this, they did not really belong to us. For if they had belonged to us, in other words, if they had truly received Jesus Christ as their savior, they would have remained with us. But their going, what did it do? It showed that none of them belonged to us. And so to the question, if eternal security is true, then why does the Bible warn us against falling away? Well, my answer to that is that biblically speaking, this whole concept of apostasy and apostates, they're considered pretend believers. They fall away from the faith because they were never of the faith. By the way, there are a couple of uh, really, really great examples of this that I would encourage you to look, on, uh, look at on your own time. Uh, the parable of the sower, Matthew chapter 13, verses one through nine, and the parable of the wheat and tares, Matthew 13, 24 through 30. Again, I highly recommend uh, that you look at these two examples on your own time. Both of those parables clearly, 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 clearly illustrate Um, apostasy in action. And they prove that biblically speaking, apostates uh, always have a profession, a profession of faith, but never a possession of faith. They're pretend believers, all right? Now, another question that is commonly raised by those who struggle with this doctrine is this. Doesn't eternal security give believers a license to sin? Doesn't eternal security allow someone to walk the aisle or, or raise their hand and accept Jesus and live however they wanna live? Well, my response to that is absolutely not. Are you kidding me? The fact of the matter is, folks, that a person who has been born again, a person who has been redeemed by the blood of Jesus, a person who is both indwelt and empowered by the Holy Spirit of God will not live a life characterized by continuous willful sin. It doesn't mean that a believer won't sin. What it means is that they will not live a life characterized by sin. As 1 John 3, 6 says, no one who abides in him, what? keeps on sinning. No one abides in him, lives a life characterized by sin. No one who keeps on sinning has even seen him or known him. And so to the question, doesn't eternal security give believers a license to sin? The answer is no. Why? Because a person who has truly been born again will not live a life like that. And so, The doctrine of eternal security. What is it? Well, it's the idea that once you are saved, you're always saved. You cannot lose 
your salvation. And this doctrine, though it is often debated, is both biblical and essential to the life of freedom that God has called us to live. And yet, there's some questions that need to be answered here. But as we go verse by verse through the book of Romans, chapter eight, verses 31 through 39, the hymn of security, what we're going to discover is solid, solid, solid biblical evidence that there is, listen to me, nothing that can separate you from the love of God. And here's your big idea that I want you to walk away with uh, this, this weekend. It is that no person or problem can threaten my salvation. In Christ, I am eternally secure. We are eternally secure. Now forgive me for such a long introduction, but I felt it was necessary to set us up for our Bible study today. And with that, I'd love to pray, and then we'll hop into Romans 8. So would you bow your heads? God, we thank you for your word. God, your word is truth, and it has the power to set us free. God, as we look into Romans 8, 31 through 39 today, God, would you speak to our hearts Would you encourage us? Would you help us to behold the great love that you have for us? We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. So Romans 8, beginning in verse 31, the apostle Paul starts off with a question. What then shall we say to these things? What then shall we say to these things. What is Paul referring to when he says these things? Well, what I would submit to you is that these things no doubt refer to the amazing truths that Paul has already presented to us in chapter eight. Uh, By way of summary, Paul shows us in the first 30 verses of this chapter that there is no condemnation for true believers, verses one and two. In verses 16 and 17, Paul shows us that a believer's life is to be marked by the Holy Spirit of God. He goes on and he shows us that believers have the ability to not only understand but endure suffering. Why? Because they know of the glory to come, verse 18. And that God is able to work out all things, not some things, all things for good for those that love him and are called according to his purpose. And so Paul says, what then shall we say to these things? What Paul is doing here is he's wanting us to think, okay? And I would encourage you to read verses one through 30 uh, on your own time, but Paul is encouraging us, hey, I want you to think about these things, these amazing truths that I've just laid out for you. And what he does here in the next few verses is he asks us some rhetorical questions Uh, to get us to think, okay? He asks us rhetorical questions. So these questions don't necessarily require an answer, right? But what we're gonna find in each case is that the answers are implied. And so the questions with their implied answers are gonna reveal some really great truths to us about our eternal security. And the first truth that we're gonna find this morning is this, that God is for us. God is for us. He's for us. 
Verse 31, what shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? If God is for us, it's important to note here that that word if translates the Greek conditional particle which is spelled E-I and pronounced A. It translates the Greek conditional particle A, which does what? It points to something that is fulfilled, not something that is possible, okay? And so when Paul says, if God is for us, who could be against us? Really what he means here is that because God is for us, no one can be against us. God is for us. He's for you. He's for you. As a child, I remember playing uh, recreational soccer. I had to be like five, six years old. But I remember being out on the field right before game time. I played defense. Right before game time, I remember uh, scanning the sidelines looking for my dad. You guys remember that when you're a kid? Like you go, you go, you go to the game right, it could be basketball, soccer, something else. You go to the game and, and you, you know, you, you're hurried out onto the field and you're, you're warming up and you're practicing and you're getting ready and that's kind of your focus. And then it comes game time and you're like, wait, where are my parents? And you start, you, you're just like a little guy, a little gal, right? And you're like, wait, where are my parents? And I, I can remember being on the field and, and, and scanning uh, the, the, the sidelines and I remember finding my dad and I'll never forget locking eyes with my dad before the game, seeing the confidence in his eyes. Y'all gonna have to give me a second. Goodness, dad passed away just a few months ago. Thank you. But I'll never forget locking eyes with my dad and seeing the confidence in his eyes. Two thumbs up. You know, mouthing, I couldn't hear it, but two thumbs up saying, you've got this. It filled me with, with a sense of pride and courage knowing that my dad was for me. And in the same way, God is for us. He's for you. He's for you. Ladies and gentlemen, this is covenantal language. It speaks of the covenantal relationship that we have between God and us. It speaks of the bond of fellowship where God is providing for us and protecting us and we are abiding in him. I love what J.I. Packer said about this verse. He said, what is being proclaimed here is God's undertaking to get this, to uphold and protect us when men and things are threatening, to provide for us as long as our earthly pilgrimage lasts and to lead us finally into the full enjoyment of himself, however many obstacles may seem at present to stand in the way of our getting there. The simple statement, God is for us, is in truth one of the richest and weightiest utterances that the Bible contains. God is for us. And I believe what Paul is trying to do here is to get us to think, 
He wants us to think about all of the opponents that we have in our lives, our enemies, the devil himself, our own sinful nature. He wants us to think about our opponents and then weigh them against God and to realize they're no match for God. They're no match for God. How many of you watched the uh, NBA Finals this year? (laughs) Sorry, Heat fans. (laughs) This would be like Steph Curry, 2022 NBA MVP, right? It'd be like Steph Curry coming into a City League basketball game down at the Civic Center and joining your team. Guess what? That's game over for the other team. Who can be against Steph, right? If you're on Steph's team, you have nothing to fear. And in the same way, since God is for you, since God is on your team, you're on his team, guess what? You have nothing to fear. People, are gonna come against you. Satan will come against you. But because God is for you, you have nothing to fear and the things that come against you will not succeed. God is for us and it is the first proof of our eternal security. The second proof that I wanna share with you this morning is that Jesus died for us. Jesus died for us. Let's look at verse 32. He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us how many things? All things. When I read this verse, I can't help but think of the story of Abraham and Isaac. Do you guys remember the story? For those of you who are new to the Bible, uh, the story very simply goes like this. Abraham obeys God and is willing to sacrifice his own son. It's wild, I know, but this is the story. Abraham obeys God and is willing to sacrifice his own son. But God does something incredible. God provides a substitute at the last minute, a ram caught in a thicket. And this is what God said to Abraham in Genesis 22, verse 12. God said to Abraham, you have not withheld, literally spared, you have not spared your own Son, your only son. And what's interesting to me is that Paul uses the same word here translated as spared. He who did not spare. Now, in Abraham's case, as was already said, God intervened and he provided a ram in Isaac's place. But what I want you to realize this morning It's that Jesus died for you. When it came to the cross, there was no intervention. God delivered up his own son for you. As 2 Corinthians 5.21 tells us, he made him who knew no sin. Jesus was a sinless man. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf. Why? So that we might become the righteousnesses of God in him. Ladies and gentlemen, Jesus endured the awful pain and the awful suffering for your sins and for my sins. And by bringing this up, Paul is trying to get us to think. He wants us to think if God did something that big for us, certainly he's gonna provide all that we need to persevere all the way to the end. 
It's the same argument that he uses in Romans 5, uh, 10. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. Think about that, church. If while we were enemies, while we were enemies, before you knew Jesus Christ, you were an enemy of God. You were on the wrong team. You were an enemy of God. And if while you were that way, an enemy, God reconciled you by the death of his son, how much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life? In other words, Paul is arguing, listen, if God did the greater thing, don't you think that he's gonna do the lesser thing of getting you to heaven, right? Look at it this way. If you give your child a new 3,000-piece Lego set for their birthday, you wouldn't deny them the directions to put it together, would you? That would be really mean. If you do the greater, buy the Lego set, certainly you're gonna do the lesser and give them the directions to put it together. Ladies and gentlemen, God did the greater. He gave us Jesus Christ nailed to a cross for the forgiveness of our sins. And I came to tell you today, he's gonna do the lesser and provide you the eternal security that you have. He will see you through to eternal life. And so listen, we can hold to this incredible doctrine of eternal security. Number one, because God is for us, but also because Jesus died for us. And the third thing that I wanna share with you is that God justifies us. The third proof for our eternal security is that God justifies us. Let's look at verses 33 and then the beginning of verse 34. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Now these two questions that Paul raises here carry the same general idea. Uh, and what I want you to notice about these two questions is the legal terminology that Paul uses. He says, who shall bring any charge? Who is to condemn? That phrase, bring a charge, is a legal phrase that refer, refers to making a formal accusation. Uh, we call it pressing charges, okay? Pressing charges. All right, be honest. How many of you watched the Johnny Depp Amber Heard trial. Come on, don't be embarrassed, don't be ashamed. My hand's up, I, I watched it. That was, good, that was good entertainment. It was good entertainment, y'all. Horrible circumstances, obviously, but really good entertainment. What did Johnny Depp do? He pressed charges against Amber Heard. Did you know that Satan presses charges against you? Did you know that you have enemies who press charges against you? Did you know that you yourself press charges against you? <laughs> Wait, I press charges against myself? Yeah, you do. How many times have you gone to God and said, God, how could you love me and how could you forgive me after what I've done? We bring charges against ourselves, don't we? Paul's trying to get us to think. Who can bring a charge against God's elect? 
It's God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Well, a lot of people can condemn us. A lot of people can bring charges against us. But the point of this verse is that the accusations don't hold up. You know why? Because it is God who justifies. Not your enemies, not Satan, not your own guilty conscience. No, it is God who justifies. And since we are followers of Jesus, the judge himself, guess what? He's declared you to be righteous. And by the way, he did it with his eyes wide open with full knowledge of who you were and who you would become. He saw you and he saw your sin and he loved you anyway by sending Jesus to the cross. Romans 5, 8, but God shows his love for us in that while we were sinners, while we were sinners, he showed his love for us through Christ dying for us. That's so powerful. And so Paul's going, hey, who's, who's, who's gonna bring a charge? Who's gonna condemn? A lot of people, but guess what? They can try all they want to, but their condemnation goes nowhere. Because Romans 8, 1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. What Paul is saying is that nobody can challenge the Lord's verdict on your life. There's no court of appeals in heaven. Okay, Satan, our enemies, our own guilty conscience, they can't go anywhere with the charges because the case is closed. The case is closed. God justifies you. God justifies you. And by the way, the only one who could condemn you, and, 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 it, and it actually stick, is Jesus himself. But rather than condemn you, let's look what he did for you. Verse 34. Christ Jesus is the one who died. The only one that could condemn you, ladies and gentlemen, he died. More than that, he was raised. More than that, he is at the right hand of God, indeed interceding for you. Jesus is the only one who can condemn you, but rather than condemn you, he died to pay the penalty for your sins. Jesus is the only one who can condemn you, but instead of condemn you, he rose from the grave victorious over death to give you the hope of eternal life. Jesus is the only one to condemn you, but instead of condemning you, he intercedes for you with the Father, which leads to our next proof of eternal security, and that is that Jesus intercedes for us. He intercedes for us. Ladies and gentlemen, Jesus is literally pleading with the Father on your behalf. Why? Because you're so good now that you're a follower of Jesus? Because your works are so good? No. Jesus is pleading with the Father on your behalf on the basis of his person and his work on the cross. He is with the Father in the throne room of heaven right now, standing in your place, pleading your case for eternal security. As Hebrews 7.25 says, Jesus, our high priest, is able to save to the uttermost, that phrase, to the uttermost means completely. And so he is able to save completely those who draw near to God. How many of you have drawn near to God and you've placed your faith in Jesus? Just lift your hand. He is able to save you completely because you've drawn to him 
You've drawn to him through Jesus Christ and he is always living. This is so powerful. Jesus, now that he is resurrected from the grave, he always lives to make intercession for you. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, Jesus is making intercession for you in such a way that will save you in every way. And so when it comes to the doctrine of eternal security. I came to tell you this morning that God is for you. Not only that, but Jesus died for you. And because you've put your trust and your faith and your hope in Jesus, God has justified you. And Jesus, right now, is interceding for you. And then finally, I wanna tell you that Jesus loves you. Jesus loves you. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Do you remember singing that when you were a little kid? Jesus loves you. Verse 35, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? This is talking about Christ's love for us, not our love for him. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Again, ladies and gentlemen, Paul is trying to get us to think here. Right? And so he asked the question, who can separate us from Christ's love? Is there anything that can, can, can do it? How about tribulation? Right? We're talking about the external pressures that we face in life. By the way, anybody feel pressure in their life? I, I, I'll be the first to raise my hand. I feel pressure in my life. I've got external pressures in my life. But let me ask you this. Is it making you wonder if God is for you? Is it making you question Christ's love for you? And you can be honest here. Life can get really hard sometimes and it can make us doubt our salvation, God's love. It's okay to doubt. It's okay to have questions. But, but Paul is getting, wanting, wanting us to think. Can anything separate us? How about tribulation? And he goes on and, and he asks, how about distress? How about distress? Tribulation is external pressure. Distress is internal pressure. We're talking about things like anxiety. We're talking about things like, like fear, doubt, confusion. Can, can this separate us from the love of Christ? How about persecution, Paul asks. Now I will say, uh, persecution was really applicable uh, to, to, to the church in Rome that Paul was writing to. I, I don't feel like it's very applicable to us here in the United States of America. We don't know what persecution is. We really don't know what persecution is. If you wanna know what persecution is, travel to China and go spend a week with the underground church there. Then you might know what persecution is. But what about persecution, Paul says? Can that separate us from the love of Christ? What about being out of work and not knowing where your next meal will come from? Will famine separate us from the love of Christ? How about a, a lack of adequate clothing? What about danger, death even? Will anything separate us from the love of Christ? What does the first word in verse 37 say? Shout it out. 
No. Paul is saying nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. And I know some of you are here this morning and you're, you're wanting to know, uh, how then could God allow these terrible things to happen to us if he really loved us? Have you ever wondered that? It's okay to admit that here in this church. It's okay to feel real feelings. But some of you are here this morning and you're going, wait a second, if Jesus loves me so much, how could he let all these terrible things happen to me? Why would he let me suffer? And with all the love in my heart, I would then ask you, where did you get the idea that Christians aren't supposed to suffer? Where did you get the idea that coming into a relationship with Jesus equaled you know, a life free from pain? Where, where do we get this? Now, Paul, probably knowing that his readers would ask a question like this, he addresses it in verse 36. And here he quotes from Psalm 44, 22 from the Greek Old Testament. He says, as it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. So I want you to get the flow, flow here, okay? You guys with me? Verse 35, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, sword, as it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are being killed, are being killed. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. What Paul is saying here is that trials and tribulations are to be expected. Trials and tribulations, they're nothing new. Or, 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 or unexpected for the follower of Christ. Ladies and gentlemen, suffering has been a part of the lives of God's people since the beginning of time, and it's gonna continue to be that way. Jesus said, in this world, you will have trouble. You will suffer. You will go through trials and tribulations. But I don't want you to miss Paul's emphasis here. His emphasis is not that we will that we will suffer, his emphasis is that our suffering cannot separate us from the love of Christ. Verse 37, no, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Paul says, in all these things, in all these things, not by being sheltered from these things that he lists in verse 35, right? No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors. That phrase literally means hyper conqueror or super conqueror. And so what it means is that we conquer, as it were, with success to spare. We are hyper conquerors. I love what Hendrickson said. He said that a conqueror is just a person who defeats his enemies. And so a hyper conqueror would be a person who causes his enemies to become his helpers. Woo, I love that. So get this, get this. I don't want you to miss what Paul is saying here. He's saying that as believers, these painful problems that, 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 that you're gonna face and you're gonna face them, guess what? Not only do they not separate you from the love of Christ, they don't hurt you, they help you. They become your helpers because they help us grow stronger in our faith. You see that? Verse 28, look at it, look at verse 28. How many things work together 
for good. All things work together for good, the good times, the bad times, the times that we feel like life is going really well, but then the times that we're suffering. All things work together for those who love God and are called according to his purpose. Ladies and gentlemen, Jesus loves you, and nothing, no suffering, no problem that you'll ever face can take that away. And this leads us to Paul's grand conclusion on the matter, verses 38 and 39. Paul says, I am sure, right? He's convinced there's no doubt in his heart or in his mind. I am sure, he says, that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Jesus, our Lord. Paul pretty much covers it all, doesn't he? He covers it all. And so Paul concludes here that nothing, absolutely nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. If you're a Christian, would you just lift up your hand? And let me be very clear here. By Christian, I mean someone who has genuinely acknowledged their sinfulness, repented of it, walked away from it, turned away from it, and put their faith in Jesus Christ. Okay, if you're that person, I want you to know today that God is for you. So much so that he gave you the best he's got. Jesus Christ dying on a cross for your sins. And he promises you eternal life over and over again in scripture. It's called eternal life. If eternal security wasn't true, it would be called temporary life until you sin. But no, God has promised you eternal life. And I want you to know this morning that Jesus died for you. He died for you. This is not a fairy tale. This is the truth. He died for you. He literally purchased your salvation with his own blood. And when you place your faith in him, have you placed your faith in him this morning? Guess what? God has justified you. In God's eyes, it is just as if you've never sinned. He has declared you righteous. And Jesus is interceding for you right now on behalf of you, on the basis of his person and his work. Why? Because he loves you. And I want you to realize this morning that these amazing truths that we've unpacked, they prove that once you're saved, you're always saved. And my prayer for you today is that you know, that you know, that you know, that no person, no problem can threaten that. That in Christ you are eternally secure. And this is not a license for you to sin and live however you want to live. No, the doctrine of eternal security is motivation to live like a citizen of heaven. It's motivation to live in the freedom for which Christ has set you free. It's motivation to live a life free of sin towards devotion to the Lord. Amen? Amen. Amen. Well, at this time, I wanna invite our ministry team to come forward. 
These folks who are gonna be standing up here are available to pray with you and minister to you if you have need. If you're here today and you have never acknowledged your sinfulness and admitted your need for a savior, I wanna plead with you. Put your faith in Jesus Christ today. Put your faith in the work that he accomplished on the cross for you. You will not be disappointed. God will justify you. He will sanctify you. That means that over the course of your lifetime, he'll make you more and more like Jesus. And one day he'll glorify you in heaven. All suffering, all pain, all sin will be gone and we will be glorified. We will be just like him. If you give your life to Christ today, that's his promise to you. Why? Because in him you are eternally secure. If you're watching online, go to calvarypsl.com, click on the uh, 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 Knowing Christ um, tab. The gospel is there. Uh, We would love for you to fill out Uh, The form, if you make a decision for Christ today, but for those of you who are here on location, if you wanna put your trust in Jesus today, I wanna encourage you, as people leave after closing prayer, come forward. It is the most important, the best come forward that you could ever make in your life where you come forward and you you meet with a pastor or an elder and you say, I wanna follow Jesus. It's the best come forward that you will ever do in your life, the best decision that you could make in your life. After Andrew closes in prayer, just come up. Don't be afraid, don't be discouraged. Who cares what anybody thinks? Just come up and receive Jesus as Lord. Listen, some of you are here today and you're struggling with assurance of your salvation. Maybe you don't feel saved because of suffering in your life. Maybe you don't feel saved because you walked away from the Lord for a season. These folks up here would love to talk to you about that. And we can settle it today. We we can settle this salvation thing today. So again, if you're here kind of struggling with whether or not you're saved or you've walked away from the Lord and you wanna come back, uh, we're here to talk to you about that. I love you guys. Happy 4th of July. God bless.